0: Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and so we're going to be looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. Ecclesiastes 6, 1 through 12. So this week we're going to look at the satisfied life part 2. And so last week was the satisfied life part 1, where we looked at the verses 8 through 20 of chapter 5. And the main point that we made last week is that the satisfied life is a God-centered life. And so that's going to be, again, that's going to be the emphasis this morning that a satisfied life is a God-centered life. And I mentioned the, the illustration last week of the, the sun and the planets that orbit around the sun and made the point that the sun is and must be the center of the universe. It is, it is what gives the, the balance to everything else, the gravity And everything that that is orbiting around the sun does so because the sun is in the middle. The sun keeps everything in orbit. If anything else were the center, if you were to put earth at the center or another planet at the center, anything else at the center, the universe would go into chaos. There would be disorder. Everything works because the sun is the middle. And so we, last week I compared God to the sun. God must be the center of your universe, the center of your life, because when God is at the center, everything else orbits around properly and in order. Everything works because it is centered around God. However, if you try and put anything else in the center, nothing works. And so for this section of Ecclesiastes, what the preacher is aiming to teach us is that satisfaction can never be the center of your universe, Enjoyment, satisfaction cannot be the center. God must be. And when He is, and only when He is, can satisfaction follow. And so, again, the satisfied life is not, does not pursue satisfaction as its own end. It pursues God, and satisfaction comes as a means to the end of enjoying God. So, we'll see that this morning. Well, if you're there, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm going to. Re- Go through verse 12 so you can follow along as I read. Ecclesiastes 6, beginning in verse 1. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, it is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good Do not all go to one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. This also is vanity in a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Let's, let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we, as we look at these verses, at this passage, I pray that you would satisfy us, satisfy today, satisfy us today with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So as we break this down, there's three sections uh, in this, this passage. So we're going to look at verses, the largest section is verses one through six. The first point we'll look at is, um, it, it teaches that satisfaction must come from God. That We'll see that in verses 1 through 6. Then second, we'll see that satisfaction is not dependent upon stuff or things or possessions. And then third, and finally in verses 10 through 12, kind of the conclusion of this section, we'll see that it's just the way it is. The way it is, we'll see there in verses 10 through 12. Well, we begin there in verse 1 of chapter six, satisfaction must come from God. So the preacher begins this section with a great evil that he's seen. And the great evil is simply this. Look there at verse two. A man, there's this man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor. And all of those things, notice, are given to this man by God. So God gives him all of this stuff, all these things, so that it can be said that he doesn't lack anything that he desires, So he has everything he could ever want or dream of. He's lacking nothing. Yet, here's the issue, God does not give him power to enjoy them. So he has all the stuff, but he can't enjoy them. So enjoyment in all of his stuff is what's lacking. Instead of him enjoying it, the the preacher says a stranger actually enjoys all his stuff. Now, we we don't know the specifics of why The stranger enjoys him and not the man. Maybe it's because he dies before he can enjoy them. Or maybe it's just that God never gives him the ability to enjoy them. And his whole life is spent gathering and and having, but he is never given the ability from God to enjoy them. And so he dies without enjoying them. We don't know the case, the reason why he doesn't enjoy them. But that doesn't matter because the point that the preacher is making is that enjoyment comes separately from the earthly gifts or possessions. That's his point. He can have all these things and satisfaction is not included. And so he could have all these things without enjoyment of them. Satisfaction is not included. It's as if the preacher here at the outset wants us to know that outside of every department store, every car dealership, every realty office, every place where goods are exchanged or sold, there should be a big, flashing neon sign that warns satisfaction sold separately. Satisfaction sold separately. So whatever you're coming in here to get, you better be aware that satisfaction is not guaranteed. It actually is sold separately. This is what the preacher has seen with his own eyes. He's seen that the abundance of possessions and wealth and riches does not automatically satisfy or provide enjoyment. And so the man who has everything he could ever desire, but who never enjoys any of it, the preacher says, this is a great tragedy. This is an evil. But he goes one step further. It's not only that satisfaction is sold separately. The preacher goes further and makes the point that satisfaction can only come from one source, from one possession. And the preacher teaches that God is that own, only source. God is the one who must and the only one who can give enjoyment. The satisfied life is the God-centered life. This means that no earthly possession can ever satisfy unless God grants satisfaction, unless God gives enjoyment. And so satisfaction must come from God. And when it doesn't, when God doesn't grant satisfaction, as is the case with this man, the harsh reality is that prosperity and wealth and accumulation that is void of God-given satisfaction is not a sign of blessing, but is actually a grievous evil. And so to further emphasize this point here in verses 3 through 6, the preacher is going to make this hypothetical comparison. He's going to compare this man to a stillborn child. Now, I recognize that this comparison can seem a bit insensitive. I get that. Anytime you talk about and mention stillborn children, right, it's a sensitive subject. And so I want to be sensitive to the fact that there are probably mothers and fathers here in this room that have experienced a stillbirth. And in so doing, have experienced unimaginable pain and loss. I can't imagine that pain, but I know it's there and I know it's real. So, so I just want to let you know I'm aware of that. But the, the, the preacher brings up the birth of a stillborn not to highlight the, the, the nature of the stillborn as a favorable state, Right? He he doesn't want to highlight that. Though so he does say this state is better off. He does say it's favorable, but his point in bringing it up is to not to minimize this tragedy, but to through the shocking comparison to highlight the tragedy of the life that's lived without contentment or peace of mind. So he says, here's this state that's tragic, but this state is better than this state. And so his point is to highlight or elevate the tragedy of the man who lives a life without contentment or peace of mind or fulfillment. So the point isn't the tragedy of the child who never lived. The point is the tragedy of the man who never enjoyed his life. And so notice how he highlights the tragedy of the life that's lived without contentment or satisfaction. Notice he compares these two in verse 3. So first individually, we mean, is this man, not just any man. This is a man with a 100 children. And if you think four is a lot, this man had 100, poor wife, Right? But he had hundreds of, hundreds of children, hundred children, in many long years of life on earth. Now, I think the preacher is, is being high, he, he's using hyperbole. So I don't think he really means that there's been a hundred children. But instead, he, in introducing us to this man, the preacher wants us to recognize that this man has all the apparent blessings from God. And so long life and the abundance of offspring were, were characteristic indicators of God's blessing in the Bible. Think about Abraham and Sarah. They wanted a child. They didn't have a child, and, and, and they didn't know how he could be the heir of promise if he had not even one child. And the great blessing was your, your descendants are going to be innumerable, right? That's a sign of God's blessing. And long life also was a sign. So when he introduces this man, this man, as we read and hear about him, should come across as apparently blessed, having all he could ever want. So he has lots of kids and lots of years of life, yet, verse 3 continues, if he has a hundred children and a long life, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. See that phrase there? That's that's the point. That's the, that's the emphasis here. He has all this, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. If he has all the blessings without the satisfaction, he is worse off than the child who never saw the light of day. That's his point. Without satisfaction or enjoyment, life and all of its gifts are useless. They only lead to frustration and loneliness. Notice how the preacher mentions that this man who finds no satisfaction isn't even given a proper burial. Right? So, so that's, that's a sign of being cursed. And so This man has everything, actually ends his life in a state of cursedness because it, he's not even buried properly. And so this quote-unquote blessed man is far from blessed when God-given satisfaction is lacking, when he's discontent and can't find enjoyment. The preacher says that the stillborn child is better off than this man because this child even though this, the birth, his birth is in vain, so, so that the, the delivery doesn't bring about life, the child has already died, so, so this, the, the delivery doesn't bring about life. Even though this child comes and goes in darkness, even though this child ne- is never known by his parents or siblings, despite all those things, this child who doesn't live one day in this world is better off than the man who has everything he could ever want and thousands of years to live because this child, the preacher says, is at rest. Whereas this man is not. He's toiling and toiling and can get no satisfaction. And so the child who died without ever living is better off than the man who lives endless years with endless possessions, but who never finds satisfaction. Because at the end of the day, this man is gonna be dead just like the child, but his death, the preacher would say, is even more tragic because he never really lived, though he had every chance to. And this comparison makes the point Clearly, I think, that no matter how long you live or how much money you have, it's all meaningless unless you can enjoy it. It's meaningless unless you can enjoy it, which you will never be able to do, which I will never be able to do without God. Satisfaction is God-given and must be. It must come from God. And so, in the hopes of being redundant, let me make a point of application here. The satisfied life is the God-centered life. God alone can satisfy. The human soul cannot find true satisfaction outside of a right relationship with God. And so for you sitting here today, let me just tell you, if you lack satisfaction, you ought to know God through Jesus Christ. That is the only way for you to ever be satisfied. Jesus alone. You can try and seek satisfaction everything else, And there are a lot of other things that you can pursue satisfaction through, but none of them will satisfy. You must know God, which was impossible for you apart from Christ, but now in Christ it is possible for you and for me to know God through Jesus Christ. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, let me me urge you. Jesus offers you a life of joy and pleasure unimaginable, but it only comes through him. The human soul cannot find true satisfaction outside of a right relationship with God, which comes through Jesus Christ. The the well-known author C.S. Lewis wrote in probably his most famous book, Mere Christianity. He writes, quote, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There's no such thing. But the good news is that God has given us himself and with himself happiness and peace one of the most well-known preachers of the last several decades has has a tagline or or kind of a, a a theme for his life and it's simply this god is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him he says god is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in god and so he would say do you want to glorify god well we'll find your satisfaction in god his point is that we were made to be happy, to be joy filled, to be satisfied, but we were made all those things, we were made to be those things and to find those things in God alone. Last quote I'll share a famous fourth century North African bishop once famously said, You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So that's Augustine in his confession says, You, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Well, the same is true for satisfaction. So that we could say, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and we will be satisfaction-less until we find our satisfaction in you. And so application is simply to, to drill into your mind that God alone can satisfy. He is the only one and he is the one who must satisfy you. Well, as we move on to verses 7 through 9, the preacher shifts from looking at the necessity of God giving satisfaction, and now he turns or shifts his focus towards the inability of men and women to satisfy their appetites. And he does so to make the point that satisfaction is not dependent upon stuff. It's not dependent on stuff. Look there at verse 7. He says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. And so that's a problem, isn't it? All the work, all the effort, all of man's labor is to fill his mouth, to, to, to fill his mouth, to consume in order to fill this need for consumption. Not just, not just physical consumption, but just material, just stuff. And so all his labor, all his work is to fulfill this need, and yet he never stops needing or desiring more. The preacher says his appetite is never satisfied. And so that's an issue, right? It, it's, it's, it's a road you never get to the end of. It's all vanity, the preacher says. It's not just a hypothetical man in verse 7. You or I will never have enough stuff that satisfies our appetite. We won't. That's just the human desire. If we're seeking satisfaction in stuff, we will never be satisfied. There's a human tendency, a human desire of more, more, more. And his point is that satisfaction isn't dependent on the stuff that you have. And so more stuff doesn't equal satisfaction. New stuff doesn't equal satisfaction. Different stuff doesn't equal satisfaction. No stuff, no amount of stuff equals satisfaction. It's not possible. And the truth is, we're all going to be acutely aware of this reality in about three months. In about three months. In about three months, we'll all have gone through another Christmas season. That's just three months. Christmas is going to be over. But at the end of the Christmas season, we will have all bought the perfect presents for our family members and friends. We will have gotten our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids exactly what they wanted. We may have even spent more money than we should have, but we could justify it because we knew, we just knew that those presents were exactly what what he or she wanted or needed. It was on their list. But three months from now, we will have to face the harsh reality, and it's better to know this now, going into the Christmas season, that the presents didn't make the impact we had hoped for. We'll have to face that reality. Our kids and grandkids will not have been magically cured of their discontentment. In fact, just a few days after Christmas, they'll probably be fighting with their siblings or cousins or friends about wanting their toys because the own toys they got have become boring or broken or worn out. Or maybe, in just over three months, a little closer to home, we will all have come to realize that our new Christmas presents, whether clothes or accessories or gadgets or games or books or electronics or whatever we got that we most wanted or most excited about, we'll have to realize that the joy of our stuff is fleeting also. It doesn't last. It doesn't last. And it won't be long before your appetite will drive you from what you have to what you don't have. That's just how it is. The human desire for more and more. This is the deceitfulness of stuff in this world. It will never satisfy. Preacher Philip Riken writes, usually we think that we can find satisfaction in everything that life has to offer. Food and drink, music and beauty, family and friends. Yet desire is a tramp. Never content to stay at home, it always wants to go out wandering. Our desires are always traveling but never arriving. This is the wanderlust of the human soul. Do you hear that? Our desires are always traveling but never arriving. This is the wanderlust of the human soul. Never satisfied. Never satisfied. And since this is the case, in verse 8, the preacher asks, What advantage is there to being wise, as opposed to clearly being foolish? If both the wise and the fool have insatiable appetites that can never be satisfied, what benefit is there really for being wise? If the search for satisfaction in stuff, wisdom and folly are both incapable of producing, there's no benefit in being wise over foolish. That's what he's saying, there. there's no benefit. Now, let me say, there is benefit in being wise. Wisdom is better than folly. But in this search, as he's talking about, there is no benefit. The solution, though, that the preacher lays forth is found there in verse 9 with a poor man who knows how to in- conduct himself because the poor man is better off than the fool and the wise man of verse 8 who are both seeking satisfaction from stuff. And so this, the poor man of verse 9 is better off because he sees and recognizes what he has, what is before his eyes, And he knows how to conduct himself, which which is saying he's content with what he has and what he sees. Whereas the wise men in the full of verse 8 don't see what's in front of them, but instead they have a wandering appetite. They have a wandering appetite they're always trying to satisfy, which is something that they will eventually realize is vanity and a striving after the wind. And so this poor man in verse 9 without a bunch of stuff has learned how to simply walk through life content with what he has. That's the benefit he says to be content with what he has, while the two others are determined to wander, search, and roam for gain their whole lives. And so lesson to learn from this poor man is that satisfaction isn't dependent on stuff. He can walk through life and be satisfied with what he has. One author writes, better, therefore, to enjoy what we have in possession than to be roving up and down in anxious weariness. And so point of application here, Beware of your wandering appetite. Beware of a wandering appetite. And I'm not just talking about food. Beware of a wandering appetite. The Christian life is a call to watchfulness. We must be aware of our wanderings and our proneness to wander. We all have within us, you and me included, a proneness to wander, an appetite that seeks to be satisfied apart from God. And we all have that within us, a desire to be satisfied with useless things, with lesser things. And the reality of these verses ought to be a wake-up call to us. Satisfaction isn't dependent on stuff. One more thing isn't going to end your search. Satisfaction isn't dependent on wealth or honor or reputation. We must continually remind ourselves of this. Because we live in a world and in a culture that is built upon the exact opposite. Come be satisfied in what this has to offer. There's this great illustration in John Bunyan's classic book, Pilgrim's Progress. If if you haven't read it, you should. Some of you probably read it in grade school. A great, great story, an allegory of the Christian life. But but there's this scene where Christian, who's the main character, he's traveling with his friend who's named Faithful, and they're on their way to the Celestial City. They're going to heaven. They're on this journey. And, And just before they get to the Celestial City, they must pass through this place, this city called Vanity Fair, and Vanity Fair has been set up by Apollyon, this evil ruler, right here before the Celestial City because he knows that this is the way to prevent the pilgrims from getting to the Celestial City. And, and Vanity Fair is just like it sounds. It's a year-round fair that never ends, and it's filled with vani- vanities, merchandise to be sold. And so Bunyan, he, he lists all the, the, the merchandise that's sold here in Vanity Fair. He says there's houses lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts. There's harlots, there's wives, there's husbands, there's children, there's masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. So this is vanity fair that's filled. These streets are filled with vendors selling all this stuff. And so Christian and faithful are on their way to this celestial city. As they're passing through, everyone's watching them. They're strange. They're dressed weird and they're not acting like everyone else in Vanity Fair. They're different. And, and all these vendors are trying to get them to buy their stuff, their vanities. And what they do, whenever these vendors would try and talk to them, Bunyan writes that they'd put their fingers in their ears and they'd cry, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. And they would look upward, signifying that their trade in traffic was in heaven. And so as they're going, they're, there's all these people who are, who are trying to, to sell off vanities. And they're just saying, keep my eyes from evil things. Keep my eyes from vanities. Looking up to heaven. And people are laughing at them. Look at these, And they are eventually arrested and Faithful ends up dying. He's killed there. He's a martyr in Vanity Fair. But what a great picture. Walking through Vanity Fair. Our traffic, our trade in traffic is in heaven, not... Among these vanities. Now, I'm not saying we need to go around with our fingers in our ears quoting Psalm 119, but I do think we could learn a thing or two from Christian and faithful. They knew that their wandering appetite would lead them to waste their entire lives in Vanity Fair. If they indulged one, they could spend the rest of their lives there and die there. And they knew that's not what we're supposed to do. We're going to the the Lord, to the King of the celestial city. And they knew the city was on the other side of Vanity Fair, so they conducted themselves accordingly. They had to get through Vanity Fair to get to the celestial city. And so, Christian, I would simply urge you, as I urge myself, beware of your wandering appetite. Well, then finally, in verses 10 through 12, the preacher closes this section by by, by offering this conclusion, which is a reminder... And this reminder is that life under the sun, as he's just described in the previous verses, it really isn't up for debate. It's just the way it is. that's, That's the point he's making in verses 10 through 12. It's just the way it is. And so as you look there at verses 10 through 12, notice verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than him. And so as as he's quoting, or as he's speaking and teaching and instructing in verse 10, the background here is Genesis 1. So in the background of his mind is the creation account. And so the preacher is playing off the creation account. And can't get lost in all this discussion about human pursuit and satisfaction, that man is not the determiner of his or her purpose in life. And he goes back to creation, or alludes to creation to remind us of that. The man is not the determiner of his purpose, Mankind and everyone there within has been created. That's what he says. What is, whatever has come to be has already been named. It's already been named. Think about the, the, the account with Adam. Adam and Eve are named. Adam is man, which is dust. Man is created from dust. And we'll return to dust. Man is a created thing. And so he's saying, as a created thing, we can't determine or decide what, what satisfies us. There's one greater than us who created us, who is the one who decides where satisfaction comes from. As human beings, we prefer to make a name for ourselves, but in fact, we have already been named. And we've been named with a name that signifies weakness in the face of the Almighty Creator God. We are dust. And this almighty creator is not one with whom we can contend or dispute. We are all creatures who came from dust. We were named by one greater than us. And he is the one who determines how it is. We are not the masters of our own destiny. We can't satisfy ourselves. And the preacher wants you and me to know that that's just the way it is. His point is the pursuit of satisfaction is above any man's pay grade. You can't get there. You're not qualified We weren't intended to find satisfaction in any created thing. And he continues, no amount of words or philosophy is going to change the reality. The way it is is the way it is. We can't talk ourselves out of this one or explain it away. Man will never be able to gain a hand up on God in understanding this life under the sun, which is the the questions at the end, the answers are, are clearly assumed to be no one but God. Only God knows what is good for man while he lives. And only God knows what will be after you. You are not God. You live life under the sun as a created person. And so a satisfied life is a God centered life. It cannot and will not ever be anything different. Acceptance of this reality is a necessity. It's not up for discussion, it's the way it is. And in light of that, adjusting your life to this reality is a necessity. In fact, it's the only way for you to have a satisfied life is to adjust accordingly. As the preacher said at the end of chapter five, behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toys under the sun. For this is his lot, everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to expect his life and rejoice. This is the gift of God. For he who does this, he who finds satisfaction in enjoying God alone will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. We want to live joy-filled lives, not occupied with toy, because they're so consumed with satisfaction in God alone. And so satisfaction in life must come from God. A satisfied life is a God-centered life, but knowing it isn't enough. We must aim to find our satisfaction in God alone. We must adjust to reality, to the way things are. Just pretending that things are not the way they actually are doesn't work. We must adjust to reality. And so I want to close with this this illustration, which I think is fitting, it's fictional, just so you know. It's not true, but it's an appropriate illustration. There's, there's, there was a, a, a transcript of a radio conversation that was found between a U.S. naval ship and another party. Maybe you've heard this before, but here's a, a transaction, a transcript of the conversation. It's fictional. But the U.S. ship says, please divert your course 0.5 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The reply comes, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south and avoid a collision. The U.S. naval ship, in response, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The reply comes, no. I say again, you divert your course. To which the U.S. naval ship responds, this is the aircraft carrier Enterprise Enterprise. We are a large warship of the United States Navy. Divert your course now. To which the reply comes, this is a lighthouse. Your call. (laughs) Now again, that's a fictional, that's not true. You can go on Wikipedia and it's not true. But the point point that I want to make is that the satisfied life in this world is a God-centered life. And that's the way that it is. And so, if you are here pursuing joy or satisfaction in anything else, you are headed towards a collision because that's not moving. The satisfied life is always going to be a God centered life. And so, you and I must adjust our courses accordingly. Let's pray as we close.